Welcome back to the podcast, and if you remember from last time we were talking about reducing the risk of fractures in the long-term care setting, hoping to improve outcomes for our patients, obviously, but also wanting to reduce the likelihood of long-term care litigation for ourselves and for the nursing homes that we practice in. Last time, if you recall, we talked about reducing fracture risk, and since 70% of fractures come from falls, our first approach was to reduce the risk of falls. And so we, we mentioned that reducing the risk of falls really incorporates two ideas. One, treating or managing underlying medical conditions that increase a patient's risk for falls. And most medical conditions in the elderly in some way predispose a patient to falling or at least increase their risk of falling. And that brought us to medications, which are the tools that we use oftentimes to manage underlying medical conditions. And oftentimes these medications themselves carry inherent risk for falling. They may cause somnolence or sedation. They may change blood pressure. And so we have to be very careful, even within families or classes of medications, that we're always thinking of what is the safest approach for a geriatric patient. And all this leads us to our discussion today, which is the diagnosis and treatment of osteoporosis. So you can reduce the likelihood of fractures by reducing the likelihood of falls. You can also reduce the risk of fractures by diagnosing and treating osteoporosis. Unfortunately, as we saw in the previous episode, most of our patients in the long-term care, post-acute care setting already have osteoporosis, and the osteoporosis that they have is oftentimes more severe in nature. We're inheriting patients who have not been managed appropriately through their menopausal years with things like estrogen or other medications that would maintain or enhance bone strength. But unfortunately, when the patient has their fall and fracture, no one ever goes back to the primary care physician who was treating them over the past 20 years and asks, why didn't you do something to maintain this patient's bone strength so that when they got to the age of 80 or 85, they wouldn't be so frail? It all kind of falls on us we're the ones who are managing the patient at the time when these incidents occur. So whether you think the treatment is going to provide a robust benefit or not, there is a perception that's involved to treating osteoporosis. Doing something is generally a very good thing to do for the patient, but also for the prescriber, because it shows then when the patient does have this potential fall and fracture in the future that we were aware of the risk and that we were doing something to try to reduce that risk. So let's talk first about osteoporosis and looking at the risk factors for osteoporosis. First, I think the most common thing is just going to be the female gender and age when we look at our environment because most of our women in the long-term care setting have gone without estrogen for many, many years. It might be 30 plus years and they may not have had anything in its place over those years to try to maintain or to strengthen bone. There can be other Risk factors, obviously genetic, lifestyle factors, endocrine, nutritional issues, chronic diseases, or even chronic medications like steroids that can thin bones over time. And as we move then toward diagnosis for osteoporosis, we just start to observe. We see the increased thoracic kyphosis, which really is showing us that they've had vertebral compression fractures in the past. And you can ask the history, what was their height? when they were at their tallest. And if they've lost more than an inch of height, then you have good evidence for osteoporotic disease. 
We can use confirmative testing. If there was an x-ray done on the patient where the radiologist read osteopenia, then you have confirmation of the diagnosis of osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is a clinical diagnosis, not a radiological diagnosis. There is bone mineral density testing. In the past, there were machines that could be used to measure this at the heel or at the wrist. Obviously, there are also options for full-body DEXA scanning, which can be done off-site, but, but traditionally it's been very difficult to do that because of patient-related issues as well as limited staffing and the cost of transportation. The good news is that the diagnosis of osteoporosis is really not that complicated. And bone mineral density testing is usually good for establishing a baseline, but very good for monitoring treatment along the way, especially over many years. And for most of our patients, we're trying to reduce their risk of fractures in the last years of life. And we're probably not going to be getting ongoing regular BMD testing to monitor the effectiveness of treatment. We have to lean on the data that's out there and hope for the best at this point. And so it's important to know that you can diagnose and treat osteoporosis without actually having bone mineral density testing that confirms that diagnosis. For high-risk women who are over the age of 70 who have risk factors, even without BMD testing, you can go ahead and initiate treatment. This might be as simple as adding calcium and vitamin D, or it could include adding other osteoporotic agents. Now, unless there are clinical contraindications, calcium and vitamin D are generally a good starting point for most patients in a long-term care post-acute care setting. And this treatment approach alone has shown to reduce the risk of fractures in the elderly. Beyond this, there are several other pharmacological approaches for osteoporosis, which we won't get into in a lot of depth here in this episode, but just note that for most nursing home patients who are more elderly, hormone replacement therapy or even therapy with raloxifene is probably not appropriate. So when we get into two of the more common approaches to treating osteoporosis in the long-term care setting, we have to think about the bisphosphonates and calcitonin salmon nasal spray, or miacalcin as it's commonly known by the brand name. Now again, just addressing osteoporosis and the risk of fractures in some way is going to be helpful to the patient and to the provider. So adding calcium vitamin D can be a very good starting point, and that may be as far as you want to go. When you're thinking about potentially getting more aggressive in treating osteoporosis and trying to reduce fracture risk, you're probably going to come down to the bisphosphonates or calcitonin nasal spray or miocalcin. There are a few things to keep in mind because these are very different approaches. Although they both inhibit osteoclast activity, so they work very similarly, they're administered very differently, and they have some different warnings associated with them. For instance, if you have active upper GI disease, things like GERD or gastritis or some other esophageal abnormality, if you have diminished renal function, if you have dysphagia, the recommendation is that bisphosphonates not be used. So you have to be very careful. With patients who have specialized diets or issues with swallowing, the bisphosphonates can be very dangerous. And so there's a very special administration regimen that's associated with the bisphosphonates, as you know, and when these drugs first came out, they were dosed daily, which made it very complicated. Now you can space dosing out quite a bit. But still note that when they're given orally, they have to be given at least a half hour prior to any other food or drink or vitamin or medication. 
They need to be taken with water, and not just a little bit of water. Most GI groups have said over the years that they recommend eight ounces of water to ensure that the medication gets all the way to the stomach because these bisphosphonates, if they get lodged in the esophagus, can cause esophageal perforations. And so patients have to be able to drink eight ounces of water on command. So with all these potential complexities and negatives around the prescribing and administration of bisphosphonates, why have they become the mainstay of treatment of osteoporosis? And the answer really is around data. They've shown the most robust increases in bone mineral density and reduction of both hip and vertebral fractures. Calcitonin nasal spray, on the other hand, is a very different approach. Obviously, it's a nasal spray, so there's no issues related to administration. It can be given at any time of the day, once a day. And the most common side effect is runny nose. There really is no other inherent drug-drug interaction potential or side effect with the medication to the patient. It doesn't matter if they have upper GI disease or swallowing dysfunction. does not matter if they have renal insufficiency. And so why hasn't more calcitonin nasal spray been used over the years? And the answer is because the data is not as robust. The bone mineral density increases are not quite as substantial as the bisphosphonates. And their original study data, while showing a very profound impact on reducing vertebral fractures, did not show a statistically significant reduction in hip fractures. But this is where the conversation gets very interesting and where I believe calcitonin salmon nasal spray or miocalcin becomes a really good viable option for a long-term care post-acute care population because there are essentially no risks to the medication. It's only potential benefit. But it goes a little bit deeper than that, and I want to take a few minutes just to share with you some things that aren't as well known about miocalcin nasal spray. First, did you know that calcitonin salmon nasal spray has an analgesic effect? There's no analgesic side effects. There's no dependence that's created like opioids. There's no inherent risk of falls because of sedation like an opioid. There are no potential drug interactions through the liver like we might see with acetaminophen. There are no cardiovascular side effects such as raising blood pressure or creating risk for CHF like we can see with NSAIDs. And there are really only two adverse events that occur in statistically significant realms in the original pivotal trials. One I mentioned earlier is rhinitis or runny nose. The second is headache. But it's not what you think. There's actually significantly less headache in patients on calcitonin nasal spray than there were on placebo. So this is the first indication that there was some kind of an analgesic effect with this medication that was really unknown. Several studies have also been done showing analgesic effects on new vertebral fractures. So in any patient with a new vertebral fracture, the addition of miocalcin significantly reduced the pain associated with that vertebral fracture and lowered their need for other analgesics. And the third realm of analgesia that's been seen in the literature over the years is that in the realm of osteoarthritis. There's actually been reductions in osteoarthritis pain, which all of our patients have. Anyone over the age of 65 who has been fighting gravity for all those years will have some degree of osteoarthritis. And now you can have some level of baseline analgesia, again, without any side effects or drug interactions. 
So really the biggest clinical knock against miocalcin nasal spray is that lack of hip fracture risk reduction data. But what you have to really understand from the literature and from the pivotal trials is that when you compare the original pivotal trials for Alendronate or Fosamax versus calcitonin salmon nasal spray, which is miocalcin, there was a p-value that was barely significant in the Fosamax study. There were 11 fractures in the treatment group, 22 fractures in the placebo group, and so they had a p-value of 0.047, which was just barely below the p less than 0.5 mark for statistical significance. This was a 51% hip fracture reduction rate. When you compare that to the data with the calcitonin salmon nasal spray, they had a smaller study, less patients in the study, five patients fractured on treatment, nine patients fractured on placebo, and this was just one fracture away. One less fracture on the treatment group with miocalcin or one more fracture in the placebo arm and they would have attained statistical significance. The p-value was 0.07. So while it's true that miocalcin nasal spray does not have an indication specifically for hip fracture reduction, the evidence is there that it does do benefit even at the hip. And so I think when you put all of this together, miocalcin really becomes a viable option for many of our patients to at least show that we're doing something to address their risk for fractures. And while it may not have as robust a data set as some of the bisphosphonates, my comeback and my defense would be that we're looking not only at efficacy, but safety and tolerability. We think about the administration difficulties of bisphosphonates and then all the other potential side effects that go along with them. It really is a safe approach to consider using calcitonin salmon nasal spray in our patients. There may be one other objection that arises, and I hinted at this earlier, that the bone mineral density, the BMD increases with calcitonin salmon nasal spray were not as robust as those with the bisphosphonates. And the comeback to that is this, that while the bisphosphonates can increase BMD about 6 to 8%, fluoride can increase BMD by 35% but actually make bones more brittle and not decrease fracture risk at all. So again, the thought behind what is going on with these medications is not just about bone density, but also bone quality, which is much more difficult to measure. So all that to say that we should be aware of the risk that our patients have with regard to both falls and fractures. We should address them. We should always try to manage their medical conditions, their chronic disease states as best that we can. We should prescribe smarter and use medications that carry the least amount of risk for falls. We should also think about reducing the risk of fractures by addressing osteoporosis, maybe not necessarily by putting them through an entire bone mineral density workup at a hospital, but maybe it's just adding calcium and vitamin D, or maybe thinking about the addition of another osteoporosis agent. So if we address these things appropriately, we have ongoing dialogue and good communication with patients and their families around risk and prognosis. We do our best to identify and manage disease states well, and to use medications only when necessary, and even at that, putting a lot of thought into what is the best possible choice for that patient, considering 
All aspects of the medication, including efficacy, safety, administration, tolerability, etc., and we learn to document these things well, it will help to not only improve the outcomes of our patients, but also to reduce our likelihood of being involved in litigation around falls and fractures with our patients. With that, I look forward to seeing you next time, and if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at any time. Have a great day.